So tonight we're in chapter 20, and we are we're quickly coming to the end, and uh, it's close upon us, and so I want us to, um, to finish faithfully and well, and to think as carefully about the, the end of human history, which is the beginning of eternity, as much as we have about all of the things that have come before. We want to think tonight about the millennial reign of Christ, about the destruction of the devil. And then as we come to the end of chapter 20, we want to think about the great white throne judgment. Let's read together chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, as we begin to think about the millennial reign of Christ. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, And a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Most of our study to this point has centered on the lead up to the end of human history and the beginning of eternity future. Now that we're on the precipice of that new beginning, let's recall for a moment the series of events that will get us there. Chapter 6 told us about the seal judgments. Those judgments, we argued, largely contain the story of ordinary human history between the ascension of the Lord Jesus and the beginning of the great, king, of the great tribulation. History in this period, this age of the church, is marked by the advancement of the gospel and the expanding of God's kingdom. And we saw that in the riding and the appearing of the white horse It's also marked by warfare and bloodshed, represented by the appearing of the red horse and its rider. It's marked by economic downturn and poverty and inflation, symbolized by the black horse and its rider. And of course, it's marked by death, symbolized by the pale horse. Of course, throughout this history of mankind, between the first coming of the Lord Jesus and the great tribulation, we also know that there is suffering. Suffering which sees men and women faithful to Jesus die on account of the word of God and the testimony of Christ. Something we saw symbolized in the opening of the fifth seal. And the sixth seal threw us to the end of days, the same day that represented in the seventh trumpet and represented in the seventh bowl. The end of days is a glimpse into what will happen when the day of the wrath of of the Lamb has come and those who dwell on the earth are left wondering who can stand. In Revelation 8 and 9, we saw the trumpet judgments. There we argued that as human history nears its end, the world will experience increased difficulty designed by God to turn the hearts of the unbelievers... John calls unbelievers those who dwell on the earth. That's his terminology. It will turn the hearts of the unbelievers toward him. That's the purpose of these judgments. But the unbelievers will remain largely idolaters. The hardness of their hearts in the face of such corrective mercy will prove yet again that God is just in pouring out his full and undiluted wrath in judgment upon them. In these last days before the tribulation, the church will fulfill its purpose as a prophetic, illuminating witness to the world and will, during the tribulation, be subjected to widespread persecution and martyrdom, the scale of which the world has never seen. One of the things that we've said often 
in this study is that as we think about the tribulation, one of the questions we have to answer is, will the church go through the tribulation? And of course, you know, at this point, 33 weeks into this study, that my argument is the church does go through the tribulation. If you're a dispensationalist, then you would say the church doesn't go through the tribulation. And if you're in the amillennial camp or the postmillennial camp, then you would say the church does go through the tribulation or perhaps there is no actual tribulation. But in the classic, historic, premillennial view of this, the church does go through the tribulation. And one of the arguments that I see in favor of that is this reality that the tribulation does not carry any measure of judgment or wrath or destruction against the church in terms of quality that the church has not already experienced. Throughout the long story of Christian people, men and women faithful to the Lord Jesus have lost their lives and suffered much on account of their witness to Christ. What will be different about that last end time pouring out of trouble and trial is not the quality of the wrath, but the quantity. It will be widespread destruction, widespread trouble, widespread martyrdom of the church the likes of which the world has never seen. This persecution will come because the beast from the abyss, otherwise known as the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness or the beast from the sea, will appear and commit the abomination of desolation, an event in which he will be given power by the dragon, Satan himself, to draw the world of unbelievers and in turn compel them to act in accordance with his will. As the world is coming under the dominion of the Antichrist and taking the mark of his spirit, namely the beast of the earth, the false prophet, the church will increasingly be squeezed out, subjected to persecution and death. Revelation 16 told us about the bold judgments. These are the last and full judgments of God against those who dwell on the earth, namely the unbelievers. They are poured out, I believe, during the tribulation, the final period of human history in which the church, having completed its prophetic illuminating witness, is largely martyred on account of its faith in Jesus Christ, even as the unbelieving world gives increasing loyalty to the beast of the sea, also known as the Antichrist, and prepares to make war on his behalf. The bold judgments bring down a series of harsh plagues designed as a final effort on the part of God to turn the hearts of sinners from their sin. But the unbelievers, recognizing God as the source of their pain, hurl only insults upon God. This tribulation period will witness those not destroyed physically by the plagues prepare for war on the Lamb. A war first hinted at here in chapter 16 and described in full in chapter 19. Revelation 17 and 18 described the collapse of Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great is that whoring city that held the unbelieving world under its sway and then collapsed beneath its own weight as God brought destruction upon it. The collapse of this final expression of evil opposition to God and the Lamb is neither chronologically after the outpouring of the seventh bowl nor before the catching up of the saints in the first resurrection and the coming down of Christ and the preparation of his saints for both war and peace. Instead, the description of Babylon's fall in chapters 17 and 18 is contained within the outpouring of the seventh bowl, thereby showing that as the tribulation ends... And the day of the Lord comes, the system of evil opposition, once useful to the purposes of the false prophet, the beast, and the dragon, now crumbles. Yet while Babylon falls, the beast of the abyss lives on for a season. After all, he has work to do. He must gather the troops, the kings from the east and the west, and their fighting men, so that he might make war on the lamb and his armies. Those alliances first came into view when the sixth bowl was poured out in chapter 16 and verse 12, prompting the kings from the east to march across a dried-up river Euphrates, and they were fulfilled as those rulers assembled with the kings of the earth, with the beast and the false prophet to make war against the lamb and his army in chapter 19. But of course, Revelation 19 shows that the beast and the false prophet were captured and thrown into the lake of fire while all of their compatriots were slain by the sword that came from Jesus' mouth. 
thus accomplishing the vindication long desired and finally declared. At this point in the story of redemption, we are past the mark of human history. If you think about the calendar ending, this is the end. And we have stepped out of time and space and into eternity at this point in the story of salvation. So times and seasons become more difficult to speak about and require humility as we seek to understand both the sequence and the pace of those events between the final appearing of our Savior and the establishment of his eternal reign with his people in the New Jerusalem. Robert Mounts reminds us here that as time verges into eternity, the standard measures of life as we know them prove inadequate to communicate the fullness of eschatological or end-time truth. Time as we know it having ended, Jesus comes again. He comes first to the clouds, meeting his resurrected and changed people in the air, and then he comes to earth, bringing with him his glorified bride, ready as much for a never-ending marriage supper, a battle that requires full participation for just a moment, as for a long, peaceful vacation from the affairs of this life, the likes of which the world has never seen. The marriage supper, of course, is eternity with God for his people. And the battle that lasts for just a moment is, of course, Armageddon. And that long, peaceful vacation is the millennial reign, controlled by the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus himself. His church will be ready for it all. The marriage supper is announced but not yet begun. The battle, Armageddon, is the penultimate just before the end in a long war raging since time immemorial. And it is over as soon as it begins, the results of which are the binding and banishment of the beast of the abyss, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, as well as the slaying of the unbelieving soldiers and their commanding officers. And now, as we find in chapter 20, the binding of Satan for a thousand years and the corresponding peaceful reign of Jesus Christ with his saints on the earth the surest foretaste of glory divine there will have ever been. John writes in chapter 20 in verse 1 that he saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. In chapter 9 in verse 1, we were in the middle of the trumpet judgments. And there the fifth angel blew his trumpet and John saw a fallen star come from heaven to earth star that was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Remember that in chapter 1 and verse 20, we were told that the star is a symbol of an angel. So we understand in chapter 9 and verse 1 that this star fallen from heaven to earth is an angel. An angel given the key to open the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from that pit came a horde of demonic locusts that tormented a third of the earth with scorpion-like stings. It's clear that the bottomless pit or abyss is the realm of the unclean and evil spirits, spirits which God had long contained and held at bay until the appointed hour in which he caused them to be brought forth to accomplish his purpose. Now in chapter 20, in verse 1, an angel, perhaps the same angel, appears holding the key to the same bottomless pit, but this time he has something else in his hand, not just the key, but also a great chain. The pit which has been unlocked is now going to be locked and sealed, but not before the head of the false trinity, Satan himself, is bound and thrown inside. Did you notice that John wants to make sure you know who got thrown into the abyss? He uses four terms to designate who this chief opponent of God is. First, John says he's the dragon. That takes us back to chapter 12. You remember that great story of the dragon that arose and brought warfare in heaven and was in battlement against Michael, the archangel, and the army of the host of heaven. The dragon was cast out of heaven because he was silenced as an accuser, banished from God's great glory, left to wander the earth for a time. There in chapter 12 and verse 9, John made it just as clear who that dragon is as he does here in chapter 20. 
For he said he is that ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. John first calls him the dragon, and then he calls him the ancient serpent. This, of course, takes us back to chapter 3 in verse 1. You know, the Bible is always teaching us something, right? If we're in the Bible and filled by the Spirit, the Bible's always teaching us something. And this year in Vacation Bible School, I had the chance to teach our kids. And the first day that I taught, thank the Lord I didn't have to teach all five days because I had Darlene Taylor by my side teaching the other days. But my first day was the story of the Garden of Eden. And I taught about the fall of mankind. And something occurred to me, as it often does when I'm in the middle of my teaching, something occurred to me, how do we know that this serpent is not just one of the beasts of the earth? Because he speaks. Now, you all had that, didn't you? You learned that years and years ago, but nobody had ever pointed that out to me. How do I know that this is not just, not just a beast from the earth? How do I know that this, this being has some sort of cosmic spiritual power? It's because he speaks in a way that Adam and Eve understand what he says. Animals don't do that. Oh, you might understand what your dog is begging for when he yaps, but you don't understand him as speaking the king's English. That ancient serpent, first speaking in the Garden of Eden, is now brought forth as equivalent to the dragon, a deceiver from the very beginning. John then tells you he's not only a dragon and he's not only that ancient serpent, but then he wants you to know that he is the devil. Hard to find that word in the Old Testament. You see its function, but not its name. The word devil, diabolos, is a New Testament word. It's a Greek word. But the idea of what that word means is found throughout the book, throughout the scriptures. The idea of the devil means that he is a slanderer, an accuser, a condemner, or a backbiter. We see that fully on display in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 when the devil finds himself appearing in the council of the divines. And then finally John calls this being Satan. In the Old Testament, it would be the Satan. It has the definite article. In the New Testament, it is Satanus, Satan the adversary. A reminder to us that there is a great war for your soul and for mine. And on one side is the adversary and on the other, the advocate. The adversary is Satan and the advocate is Jesus. One is against you and one is for you. Oh, hear the pleading of your advocate. John writes that the angel bound Satan for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Here we enter into a unique concept in Scripture. In fact, this is the only place in the entirety of the Bible that a post-history pre-eternity reign of God on earth with his people is described in scripture. When we look at what the Old Testament prophets were expecting to come, they were expecting that Israel would experience the fullness of God's reign and power and control over the world when God would come down and reign on the earth forever, end of story. But as time played on, and the wickedness of the human heart revealed itself. And Israel succumbed to the judgment of God in exile, first at the hands of the Assyrians and then for Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. There became a recognition in the life of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, that in fact this world itself was marked by sin and strife as much as the people of earth are. And so there became to be a thought in the hearts of the people of Israel in their minds that perhaps this world would not be the place where this final appearing of God's righteous reign on the earth would be. And so as they looked for guidance, as they looked for direction, in the time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, they began to write and explore these thoughts, not in canonical authoritative scripture, but in the apocalyptic writing, the figurative highly imaginative writing of their day. And one of the things that they often depicted in those writings, in their, in their fiction section, 
was a period of peaceful reign of God on the earth preceding his eternal reign in a new heaven, in a new earth. It's that which John is drawing on here. So one of the questions to us is, is this a reality? Is John simply using figurative language again, as he often has done throughout this study, throughout this book? Or is this talking about something real, something that will happen? I think that despite the fact that there's no other biblical warrant for this concept of a post-history, pre-eternity reign of God on the earth with his people, and knowing that John is building on an idea that doesn't come from the Old Testament, but from the literature from the time of the exile, I still think there's good reason to understand that what John is talking about here is a literal reign of God on the earth with his people after the end of human history, after the great day of the Lord, but before the establishment of eternity future in the new heavens and the new earth, God reigning with his people forever. The hallmarks of this reign are on the one hand the imprisonment of Satan and thereby the restraint of his schemes, and on the other hand the inauguration of the Savior and the reign of his saints with him in peace. What John says about the imprisonment of Satan is that he is locked away in the abyss so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. If you're a careful student of the book, then one of the questions you would have at this point is, wait a minute, I thought all the unbelievers died. Because if you've been following along at home, then you know in chapter 19, we fought the Battle of Armageddon, which is the best kind of fight there is because it's over just as soon as it begins. Jesus binds the false prophet. He binds the beast from the abyss. And then he slays with the sword of his mouth all the unbelievers who dwell on the earth. End of story. Call the birds of prey. Let them come and feast on the flesh of these unbelievers. And yet here, John is moving the story along, and he's introducing us to the fact that during this millennial reign and after it, there will be the presence of the nations, the unbelievers. So what's he driving at? I think what we're learning here is the reality that not all the unbelievers alive at the return of Christ are present at the Battle of Armageddon. There are some unbelievers left, unbelievers who would, during the millennial reign, remain susceptible to the influence of Satan and his schemes were he not bound. So here's what's going to happen. The end of days is going to come. Jesus is going to appear. He's going to catch up, rapture, all of his saints, both those alive at the time of his coming and those who have died in him. One of the questions someone asked me a few weeks ago is, well, what about all those who lived before the time of Christ? Well, here's a great place for us just to remind ourselves that everyone, everyone, everyone is saved by grace through faith. And that is a faith that either looks forward to the sacrifice of Christ, for those who in the Old Testament are saints, the people of God, or looks backward to the sacrifice of Christ, those who are the people of God in the age of the church, the New Testament. Jesus will come again. He will catch up all of his saints and then he will bring them down with him, prepared for battle. They will arrive on the scene at the Battle of Armageddon. There will be a fight that is over as soon as it begins. And all those unbelievers who marched and made war on God and the Lamb at the Battle of Armageddon will be slain. Satan will be bound, the false beast and the, the false prophet and the beast of the abyss will be thrown into the lake of fire. And Jesus will establish with his people a millennial reign during which there will be unbelievers on the earth. Unbelievers whose hearts have already been turned against God. Unbelievers who have already taken the mark of the beast. Unbelievers whose alignment, whose decided commitment is already to the dragon, Satan. But who did not come to the battle of Armageddon. And so they await themselves to be destroyed. Why does this millennial reign happen? Well, that's one of the things that we have to consider. One of the things that John is asking us to think about. Before he addresses the destruction of, of the devil, John describes the millennial reign of Christ. 
There's much debate over the nature of this rain, and its interpretation is pivotal to how we understand the rest of this book. It's the reason that when we started so many weeks ago, I told you that I don't teach from the same perspective as so many of you might have held or might have been taught in the past. I don't come from a dispensational premillennial background. In the dispensational view, the the view is a pre-trib, premillennial view. That Jesus comes before the tribulation and catches up his church. And then after the tribulation, but before the millennial reign, he comes again to establish his reign upon the earth. But I'm teaching from the historical premillennial view, which argues for a post-trib premillennial experience. And with both the catching up, in Latin, the rapture of the church, and the coming down of the church with Jesus as their Savior happens simultaneously. I think that's the view argued in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in 2 Thessalonians 2. But of course, you might be a post-millennialist or an amillennialist, in which case you have some other view. All of this to say one thing. Humility is important when you study the Revelation. We approach it with confidence because Jesus will overcome But we also approach it with humility because our conclusions about the manner in which Jesus Christ will obtain ultimate victory could be proved wrong in the end. So be humble as you talk about these things. In spite of the fact that there's much to deliberate over the nature of this millennium and how it's to be understood, John tells us what happens in the millennium. He says that he saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And also I saw, he says, the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Here we have the great challenge of interpretation. So one of two things, as we think about this literal reign of God for a millennium, whether that's an actual thousand years or just a great length of time, when we think about the actual reign of God in Christ upon the earth with his saints for this millennium, we have a decision to make in verses 4 and 5. And the decision is to identify who are the people reigning with Christ. The word for judge here is not the idea of final judgment or the idea that God's saints, his people, judge the ultimate destiny of unbelievers. But instead here, it's the idea of rule or authority or reign, control. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are reigning with Christ. We have a measure of authority given to us by Christ, not just for this thousand years, but then ultimately forever. And then John will tell us that these people are not just judges. They're not just given authority or rule or power. He will also say that they are functioning as priests. So what we're seeing here is the fulfillment of God's long-desired, long-held desire for a people, Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, a people who are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's now going to come to fulfillment. But our decision to make is, who are the saints of God described here in verse 4? And we have two options. So the first option is to see here these are just the martyrs, those who have died on account of their witness for Christ during the tribulation, those beheaded or those slain or those killed. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are all beheaded, that they couldn't have died by some other means. But instead here, it's to describe those who lose their physical earthly lives on account of their witness for Christ. If you take that position, then a couple of things happen because of that. The first is this. The first thing is you see that these who've been martyred, who've lost their earthly lives on account of their faith, they are then given the authority to reign with Christ during the millennium as a type of reward for their faithfulness to Jesus during the tribulation. The other thing that happens if you take that position is then you have to conclude that the first resurrection only pertains to those who have been martyred, those who have lost their lives on account of Christ during the tribulation period. Now, if you're a pre-millennial dispensationalist, then your idea is these are people who get saved during the tribulation and then die on account of that salvation, that experience of faith in Christ. 
But if you've been arguing from the historic premillennial view, we're not talking about people that get saved during the tribulation. We're talking about people who were always Christians, but during that final period of human history, their witness for Christ causes them to experience martyrdom or death. If you think that, the millennial reign that they have with Christ is a reward, and they are the only ones raised in the first resurrection, and then that requires you to see in chapter 20 and verse 12 that the second resurrection implied there, it's not explicitly stated, but it is implied, that the second resurrection raises the remainder of the believers as well as all of the unbelievers. There's a different view, though, and that's the one that I hold, and I hold it for reasons that I'll make clear. The different view is to say that when John talks about those who are martyred in verse 4, those who are beheaded on account of the word of God and their testimony of Jesus, he's not talking about those who just suffer physical death during the tribulation on account of their faith, but instead this is a placeholder. It's a way of talking about the whole people of God. One of the reasons that I think that's a right argument is because we know that in the first century, the word martyr, which is used in this verse, the word martyr here in the Greek did not carry the idea of death. It carried the idea of witness. A martyr was a witness. A martyr was a testifier. A martyr was someone who told what they knew to be true. When the New Testament uses the word martyr, the chief understanding is not what we understand in the 21st century, the idea of someone who dies for a cause, but instead it's the idea of someone who tells the truth about the cause. And the people of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the saints of all times and all places have been a people who bore a faithful witness of Christ, who told the truth about God and his redemption and his salvation. So one of the reasons I think we're to see the description in chapter 20 and verse 4 is not just being about those martyred during the tribulation, but about it's all God's people is because this idea of martyrdom is larger than just those who die on account of their faith. There's a second reason, and that takes us back to chapter 6. In chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, the fifth seal was broken. And you remember that in the fifth seal, we saw saints, or uh, really souls, beneath the altar of God. And they were crying out, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how much longer until you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were told to be quiet and be at rest. They were clothed in white robes. And they were promised that it would, it would come when the number of them had been completed. There were still other witnesses. There were still others to be faithful unto death. One of the things that we argued there is that those martyrs, those souls beneath the altar of God are not just those who have died on account of their witness, but those who have witnessed unto their death. That is to say there are faithful people who live a life committed to God and they die in that commitment. They die faithful to Jesus. They die going down to their death with the same hope, the same trust, the same confident belief that they have held their entire lives. They are not the people who started out once upon a time, prayed a prayer, got baptized, joined a church roll, walked an aisle, did a decision, and then wandered off into the darkness of unbelief, thinking that somehow that one-time momentary encounter with Jesus was going to save them or having, God forbid, having the church assure them of their salvation when there was no fruit in their lives. But instead, they are the people who began a walk of faith in Jesus and finished that walk well. The souls that cry out beneath the altar of God are those souls both who have been martyred, that is, their lives have been taken, but they are also those who have lived in obedience to Christ and have borne the reproach of an unbelieving world on account of him and yet remained faithful. They have enemies just as much as those who have lost their lives and they deserve to be vindicated just as much as those who have lost their lives on account of their faith. And to all of them, God promises that when their number is complete, he will vindicate them. That vindication is then seen in chapter 19 and verse 2. If you go back to 19 and 2, you see there there's an announcement. There's a word of hallelujah, an expression of praise, a declaration of worship to God and the Lamb. And it is because God is finally going to do what he long ago promised. He's going to vindicate his people. 
He's going to avenge the blood of His saints. He is going to plead their cause. He's going to make a judgment in their behalf. At the end of days, at the end of human history, when God comes again, He's going to say, I am on the side of my people. They win because their trust was in me. I think that has implication for how we see chapter 20 and verse 4. But perhaps the greatest reason that we should see chapter 20 and verse 4 as being an argument for all the people of God being present in the millennial reign of God upon the earth is because when we look at chapter 20, verses 12 to 15, and we see that description of those that are raised for the great white throne judgment, we see that all of those who are a part of the second resurrection share the same fate. That is that they appear before the judgment seat of Christ. They are found wanting because the books of their lives, the books of the deeds of their lives show that they were sinful people. And because their names are not found in the book of life, they are cast into the lake of fire with hell and death. That pretty much eliminates the presence of believers in the second resurrection. And if believers are not raised in the second resurrection, they must all be raised in the first resurrection. So the argument is this. Jesus comes again. He raises all of his saints, both those who have died and those who are alive at the time of his coming. They meet him first in the air, and then they descend with him prepared for battle. They come on the scene clothed in white and riding upon white horses ready for war and they appear with him at Armageddon against the armies of earth led by their earthly commanders as well as by the unholy trinity of the Satan, the dragon, the Antichrist, the beast from the abyss, and the false prophet, the beast from the earth. That battle is over almost as soon as it begins because the false prophet and the Antichrist are bound and the, those who have dwelled on the earth, those unbelievers who appear at Armageddon, are slain by the sword that comes from Jesus' mouth. And their earthly bodies are destroyed by the birds of prey. Satan is bound and thrown into the abyss so that he is not able to deceive the nations meaning that the remainder of the unbelievers still alive and on the earth at the time of the millennial reign of Christ will get to experience something they have never experienced in their lives, and that is temporary freedom from the power of Satan himself. For this millennial reign of Christ, they're going to get to see what it looks like to have real peace. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what it would be like to experience a world that you have never seen before? A, a world where there is real peace. Can you imagine what it might be like to have a world where there are no hospitals? Because everybody's well. A world where there are no funeral homes because nobody dies. A world where there are no officers because nobody breaks the law. A world where there are no wreckers because nobody gets in an accident. Boy, I could have used that one this week. I, I left yesterday out of here, just going home, and between, between Summerfield and Bell Road, I almost got hit three times. I could use a world where there aren't any wrecks, couldn't you? The world is going to get to experience something it has never experienced before, the peaceful reign of God in Christ. You say, why do we need a millennial reign? Why don't we just skip to the end, cut to the good part, as we say? Well, for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is because the prophets told us that there was a day coming when the lion would lay down with the lamb, when the child would play over the adder's den, that there was going to be a day when all the brokenness of this life here on this earth would be stopped because of the power of Messiah. And as a guarantee of those promises and as a fulfillment of them, Jesus is going to establish his reign on this earth to say, this is what it looks like for me to be in charge. But one of the other reasons that I believe this millennial reign is going to happen is something we've been talking about throughout this whole book. Many times John has told us 
about God's mercy being extended to the unbelieving world as both an attempt to turn their hearts to the right, but also, also as a way to justify himself when he does pour out ultimate wrath. Do you remember the story of Abraham? God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. He was a pagan stargazer, and God said, I want you to give up your idols and worship me. I'm the only living God there is. I'm going to change your world. I'm going to rock your world, man. I'm taking you to a place you've never been. I'm going to make you prosperous. I'm going to give you people unnumbered. I am going to give you a great purpose to be a light to the nations of earth. And God told Abraham, he said, Abraham, not all these things are going to be fulfilled in your lifetime. In fact, the vast majority of what I hold for you doesn't get fulfilled in this life. It gets fulfilled in the generations to come. And one of the things that I want to do for you, Abraham, is give you a great land to live in. The problem is there's some people living in that land right now. Do y'all remember this? In Genesis chapter 15, God said, hey, there's some, there's some people. They're called the Amalekites. They live in the place I'm giving to you. I got to deal with them first. And so God said, I'm going to take your people and I'm going to cause them to sojourn down in Egypt for 400 years. And I want you to understand that that period of sojourning in Egypt isn't without a purpose. It has great purpose. One of the purposes is to cause you to depend on me. But one of the purposes is for me to cause these people to make the fullness of their sin complete. I'm going to give them all the rope they can stand, God is saying. And then when I drive them out of the land, I will be justified because they did not turn to me, recognize me, serve me, love me. And so they'll deserve the judgment they get. Now, that's hard to understand if you don't believe in God's sovereignty over the world and you don't understand that his justice both requires love and judgment. But if you understand that God's justice requires both love and judgment, you can understand why these things happen. And you can understand why as we get to the end of the story of human history and the accomplishment of God's salvation, what's going to happen is that on the one hand, God is going to prepare his people to live with him forever. And on the other hand, God is going to send signs of mercy, signs of corrective action, signs of temporary judgment, signs of discipline upon the unbelievers of earth in an effort to turn their hearts. But because they love their idols, chapter 9, because they spurn God's grace, chapter 16, because at every extension of love and kindness and mercy, that God gives to the unbelieving world, they turn against it and they remain in the hardness of their hearts. God will be fully justified when he pours out his wrath on those who dwell on the earth. And the millennial reign of Christ is one last effort on the part of God to ensure that justice is accomplished. Because Jesus, with his saints, all his people, will reign peacefully on the earth. And the unbelievers who live on the earth during that season will see joy and love and kindness and mercy and peace like they've never seen before. And then after the millennial reign of Christ, Satan is going to get unleashed. And when he does... Every experience of love, every experience of peace, every experience of mercy, every experience of grace will not have been enough to turn them because they are already hardened in their hearts and they will go right back to serving the devil that they've devoted themselves to. And God will be just in judging them and condemning them forever. The millennial reign of Christ. And then quickly, you see the destruction of the devil. Look down at chapter 20 and verse 7. John says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. 
and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So very quickly here, I just want you to understand this. Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years with his saints and all those who have participation in that first resurrection, John tells us they are blessed, which is to say they enjoy the favor of God. If you believe in Jesus, if your trust is in him, if your hope is in him, if your confidence is in him, him, the day is going to come when the dead in Christ are raised and God is going to take that soul that never died and that body that did and put them back together in a glorified way. What does that mean? Well, we've talked about this a little bit on Sunday morning, But what it means is this, we're no longer subject to disease or death or decay. Those are former things that will pass away. And God will make us new, which is to say that he will make us glorified, glorified like his son, not glorified like we're Casper the friendly ghost, not glorified like we're a soul that doesn't have a body, but glorified like we are going to live forever. And we will reign with his son our blessed Savior Jesus, for 1,000 years, that millennial reign. And when it comes to its end, the abyss is going to be unlocked and Satan's going to be unbound. And he will have just a little time in which all the unbelievers of earth will gather together with him for one final battle. Gog and Magog is a reminder to us of the prophecies of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And I encourage you to go back and read the background there. But what John is describing is that there is going to be one final battle. We've already had the penultimate, that was Armageddon. Now we have the ultimate, this battle of Gog and Magog. This battle where all the unbelievers assemble under the authority of the dragon, Satan himself, and they surround the camp, that is the military enforcement. There's a place where the army of God is going to be gathered and the armies of this world, the armies of Satan, are going to gather around it in an attempt to bring destruction upon it. They marched, it says in verse 9, up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. That's, that's Jerusalem, right? That's, that's Zion. This is the place where God's people dwell with him But once again, the battle is over before it begins, isn't it? Because John tells you that fire came down from heaven and consumed them. They didn't get a chance to fight. They didn't get a chance to make war. They didn't get a chance to raise their swords. They didn't get a chance. They showed up for battle, and before they could even begin, they were destroyed. And John tells you that the certain and final judgment of the devil came immediately. It says in verse 10 that the devil who had deceived them, remember, he's an accuser, he's an adversary, he's a backbiter, he's a liar, he is, he is the accuser. He is the one who says, you're guilty. The accuser, the deceiver, the one who's a liar from the beginning was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They're already there. They got thrown there after the battle of Armageddon. Here we're reminded of something. This is really important. Here we're reminded that the lake of fire, the final destination of this unholy trinity, was a place that Jesus told us in the Gospel of Matthew was prepared for the devil and his demons. You know who it wasn't prepared for? The souls of men people created in the image of a holy God. But people created in the image of a holy God who spurn his grace and who follow the devil must go to the place prepared for the devil himself. It's a stern warning to us to listen to what John says about this place Because some of us have listened to the arguments of the world, not the arguments of Scripture. And we've begun to think, well, perhaps, perhaps God's grace is all-encompassing. And what will happen at the end of days is this sort of Unitarian, Universalist view that everyone is going to be saved by grace. Everyone's going to experience freedom. No one's going to be condemned. Nothing could be further from the truth. But it's just, listen, it's just as wrong. It's just as wrong to think that God's condemnation will be poured, about, poured out upon the unbelievers in a way that they are annihilated, which is to say that they would somehow have freedom from an eternal conscious torment, that God would just wipe them out. 
That's a lie too. The depiction of the devil's eternal state is one of eternal conscious torment. It says there in chapter 20 and verse 10 that the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Do you remember the story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16 about Lazarus and the rich man? There was a story there about kindness and grace and mercy and compassion, ministry to those who were in need. It's a parable, so it shouldn't be pushed to ultimate ends, but there is a lesson there about the nature of judgment, that those who are gods, those who believe, those who have faith are brought into God's presence. They know God's power. They're given God's provision, not just for life, but for life eternal. But there's also a statement there about the nature of judgment for those who are wicked and unbelieving, that they are forced to face conscious torment forever. Remember that the rich man says, I wish I could warn my brothers. I wish that I had just a little water to quench this fire. If I could just get a little relief. It's a reminder to us that this torment, this judgment does not ever end As glorious and powerful and wonderful and majestic and gracious as the salvation of God's people in his eternal city will be, so terrible and terrifying will be the judgment of the wicked. And then last you see there the great white throne judgment. It says in chapter 20 and verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So remember, we said that blessed are those who have participation in the first resurrection. The first resurrection is the raising. It's the resurrection of the believers, those who have have trusted in God, both before the time of Jesus and since the time of Jesus. The second resurrection is a resurrection of the unbelieving, of the condemned. The first resurrection leads to life, joy, healing, prosperity, eternal eternal relationship with God. The second resurrection leads to death and destruction and condemnation and torment forever. One of the reasons we said that we are convinced that chapter 20 and verse 4 is not talking about just those who have been martyred, those who've truly lost their lives on account of their faith, but about all the Christian dead, all the believing dead, is because here as we talk about the second resurrection, there is no sign of hope. John says that before the presence of God, before his great white throne, he saw the dead, great and small, which is a reminder to us that nobody escapes the wrathful judgment of God. You could be the poorest pauper or the richest ruler and still have to face the judgment of God. And John says that the judgment is first, it first is a judgment of their works. He says before the throne were these dead, both great and small, and books were opened. Uh, These are the books, plural, of their deeds. These are the books of their works. What have you done in your life? What have you been? How have you you related to the law of God? Have you been an obedient person? Have you kept the law of God? I don't know about your salvation experience, but I do know about mine. And I know that before I came to know Jesus as my Savior, one of the things I wrestled with was had I done enough good things to outweigh all the bad things I had done. Now, I was a precocious nine-year-old. What truly bad things could I have done? But I had sassed my mother, and I had tried to beat up my brother. He always won, by the way. And for those things, if for no other thing, I deserved hell and death and the grave. 
And I can remember a period of six months before I finally confessed my faith in Christ where I wrestled night after night after night after night. Will there be enough good to account for all the bad I've done? And my conclusion, as is the conclusion of every Christian, my works always fail and the work of Jesus never does. My salvation is not my own. It is grace given to me. John says, when the end of days comes and the unbelieving are raised from death, they will appear before the presence of God Almighty and the very thing that God will do is search the story of their lives. What did they do with the law of the Lord? And what they did... Because what every person has done with the law of the Lord is to spurn it and break it. And so then positively what God will do is turn to his book, the book of life. And the problem is their names won't be found there. Every one of us has a book of our deeds. Every one of us has these books, plural, about our life, about our relationship to God's law, about our way of breaking his, his call to obedience but not everyone has their name in his book. And those who don't have their names in his book are condemned forever, banished to the place prepared for the devil and his demons. John says that all the dead were raised. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then it says in verse 14 that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Now, death and Hades, remember, that's... That's John's way of talking about the place of, de- of death. Where, where do you go when you die if you're an unbeliever? You go to, to Hades. You go to the waiting place. You go to the place prepared for the unbelieving dead. But Hades, or what we might commonly call hell, is not the end stop. In, yeah, it said, that's right. So this word is often translated hell. King James, New King James, some other, maybe NASB, will translate this word hell. It, it's both. It, it doesn't mean the last or end time lake of fire. It means the place where the unbelieving dead go, waiting for the final judgment. And so death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, John says. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And then he tells us that if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's pretty clear at this point what gets you into heaven and what keeps you out of hell. It doesn't have one thing to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus. Is your whole hope in life and in death, in the sacrifice of God's son for you. You and I are sinners just like the rest of the world. We were ministering to a family today and one of our members said to me, you know what? I'm not any better than they are. Our sin is just different. And I said, I don't think they've ever heard anything truer. Our sin's just different, but we're all sinners. We've all broken God's law. We all have these books about our lives, about how we've related to God and the law of God, how we've broken God's law, how we've spurned God's grace, how we've turned away from him. There's a book about every one of us, and its pages are endless. The question is not, is there a book about all the wrong we've done? The question is, is our name in God's book? Have we trusted in God's son? Have we put our hope in him? Because at the end of days, the question comes down to if your name is written in the Lamb's book or not. Father, I pray. I pray that we would know what great salvation is ours in your Son, Jesus. I pray that we'd be comforted and reassured as we trust in Jesus, that our salvation has not to do with our perfection in ourselves, but with the perfect sacrifice of Christ given to us, counted to our credit, imputed to us by faith. And, oh Lord, I pray 
pray that we would not take joy in the destruction of the wicked. I pray that we wouldn't read these words and think about eternal condemnation, forever torment, conscious, conscious removal from the presence of God and think that somehow this is something for us to glory in because it could just as easily be us. We deserve it no less. Instead, Lord, let it spur spur our hearts toward faithfulness in evangelism and disciple-making. Let the reality and sweetness and beauty of God's heaven and the reality and torment and torture of the devil's hell be enough to convince us that we must share the gospel while there is still time. And we must seek to advance the kingdom of our Savior by making disciples of all nations. Lord, in the words of Spurgeon, may no one, may no one go to hell unwarned or unprayed for. So God, give us a burden for the lost. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.